What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Part 4 of Hard Times by Charles Dickens This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal. Saturday, April the 22nd, 1854. Chapter 7 Mr. Bounderby, being a bachelor, an elderly lady presided over his establishment, in consideration of a certain annual stipend. Mrs. Sparsit was this lady's name, and she was a prominent figure in attendance on Mr. Bounderby's car as it rolled along in triumph with the bully of humility inside. For Mrs. Sparsit had not only seen different days, but was highly connected. She had a great aunt living in these very times called Lady Scadgers. Mr. Sparsit, deceased, of whom she was the relict, had been by the mother's side what Mrs. Sparsit still called a powler. Strangers of limited information and dull apprehension were sometimes observed not to know what a powler was, and even to appear uncertain whether it might be a business or a political party or a profession of faith. The better class of minds, however, did not need to be informed that the Powlers were an ancient stock, who could trace themselves so exceedingly far back that it was not surprising if they sometimes lost themselves, which they had rather frequently done as respected horse-flesh, blind-hooky, Hebrew monetary transactions and the insolvent debtors' court. The late Mr. Sparsit, being by the mother's side a Powler, married this lady, being by the father's side a Scadgers. Lady Scadgers, an immensely fat old woman, with an inordinate appetite for butcher's meat and a mysterious leg which had now refused to get out of bed for fourteen years, contrived the marriage at a period when Sparsit was just of age, and chiefly noticeable for a slender body, weakly supported on two long slim props, and surmounted by no head worth mentioning. He inherited a fair fortune from his uncle, but owed it all before he came into it, and spent it twice over immediately afterwards. Thus, when he died at twenty-four, the scene of his decease, Calais, and the cause, Brandy, he did not leave his widow, from whom he had been separated soon after the honeymoon, in affluent circumstances. That bereaved lady, fifteen years older than he, fell presently at deadly feud with her only relative, Lady Scadgers, and partly to spite her ladyship and partly to maintain herself, went out at a salary, and here she was now, in her elderly days, with the Coriolanian style of nose and the dense black eyebrows which had captivated Sparsit, making Mr. Bounderby's tea as he took his breakfast. If Bounderby had been a conqueror and Mrs. Sparsit, a captive princess, whom he took about as a feature in his state processions, he could not have made a greater flourish with her than he habitually did. Just as it belonged to his boastfulness to depreciate his own extraction, so it belonged to it to exalt Mrs. Sparsit's. In the measure that he would not allow his own youth to have been attended by a single favourable circumstance, he brightened Mrs. Sparsit's juvenile career with every possible advantage, and showered wagon-loads of early roses all over that lady's path. "'And yet, sir,' he would say, "'how does it turn out after all? "'Why, here she is at a hundred a year, 
I give her a hundred, which is pleased to term handsome. Keep in the house of Josiah Bounderby of Coketown. Nay, he made this foil of his so very widely known that third parties took it up and handled it on some occasions with considerable briskness. It was one of the most exasperating attributes of Bounderby that he not only sang his own praises, but stimulated other men to sing them. There was a moral infection of claptrap in him. Strangers, modest enough elsewhere, started up at dinners in Coketown and boasted in quite a rampant way of Bounderby. They made him out to be the Royal Arms, the Union Jack, Magna Charter, John Bull, Habeas Corpus, the Bill of Rights, an Englishman's house is his castle, church and state, and God save the Queen, all put together. And as often, and it was very often, as a narrator of this kind brought into his peroration, princes and lords may flourish or may fade, a breath can make them as a breath has made. It was, for certain, more or less understood among the company, that he had heard of Mrs. Sparsit. Mr. Bounderby, said Mrs. Sparsit, you are unusually slow, sir, with your breakfast this morning. Why, ma'am, he returned, I am thinking about Tom Gradgrind's whim. Tom Gradgrind, for a bluff, independent manner of speaking, as if somebody were always endeavouring to bribe him with immense sums to say Thomas, and he wouldn't. Tom Gradgrind's whim, ma'am, of bringing up the tumbling girl. The girl is now waiting to know, said Mrs. Sparsit, whether she is to go straight to the school or up to the lodge. She must wait, ma'am, answered Bounderby, till I know myself. We shall have Tom Gradgrind down here presently, I suppose. If he should wish her to remain here a day or two longer, of course she can, ma'am. Of course she can, if you wish it, Mr. Bounderby. I told him I would give her a shake down here last night, in order that he might sleep on it before he decided to have any association with Louisa. Indeed, Mr. Bounderby, very thoughtful of you. Mrs. Sparsett's Coriolanian nose underwent a slight expansion of the nostrils, and her black eyebrows contracted as she took a sip of tea. It's intolerably clear to me, said Bounderby, that the little puss can get small good out of such companionship. Are you speaking of young Miss Gradgrind, Mr. Bounderby? Yes, ma'am, I'm speaking of Louisa. Your observation being limited to little puss, said Mrs. Sparsett, and there being two little girls in question, I did not know which might be indicated by that expression. Louisa, repeated Mr. Bounderby, Louisa, Louisa. You are quite another father to Louisa, sir. Mrs. Sparsett took a little more tea, and as she bent her again contracted eyebrows over her steaming cup, rather looked as if her classical countenance were invoking the infernal gods. If you'd said I was another father to Tom, young Tom I mean, not my friend Tom Gradgrind, you might have been nearer the mark. I'm going to take young Tom into my office, going to have him under my wing, ma'am. Indeed, rather young for that, is he not, sir? Mrs. Sparsett, sir, in addressing Mr. Bounderby, was a word of ceremony, rather exacting consideration for herself in the use than honouring him. I'm not going to take him at once. He is to finish his educational cramming before then, said Bounderby. By the Lord, Harry, he'll have enough of it, first and last. 
he'd open his eyes that boy would if he knew how empty of learning my young moor was at his time o life which by the by he probably did know for he had heard of it often enough but it's extraordinary the difficulty i have on scores of such subjects in speaking to any one on equal terms here for example i have been speaking to you this morning about tumblers why what do you know about tumblers at the time when to have been a tumbler in the mud of the streets would have been a godsend to me a prize in the lottery to me you were at the italian opera you are coming out of the italian opera ma'am in white satin and jewels a blaze of splendour when i hadn't a penny to buy a link to light you i certainly sir returned mrs sparsett with a dignity serenely mournful was familiar with the italian opera at a very early age egad ma'am so was i said bounderby with the wrong side of it a hard bed the pavement of its arcade used to make i assure you people like you ma'am accustomed from infancy to lie on down feathers have no idea how hard a paving stone is without trying it no no it's of no use my talking to you about tumblers i should speak of foreign dancers and the west end of london and mayfair and lords and ladies and honourables i trust sir rejoined mrs sparsett with decent resignation it is not necessary that you should do anything of that kind i hope to have learnt how to accommodate myself to the changes of life i have acquired an interest in hearing of your instructive experiences and can scarcely hear enough of them i claim no merit for that since i believe it is a general sentiment well ma'am said her patron perhaps some people like to be pleased to say that they do like to hear in his own unpolished way what josiah bounderby of coketown has gone through but you must confess that you were born in the lap of luxury yourself come ma'am you know you were born in the lap of luxury i do not sir returned mrs sparsett with a shake of her head deny it mr bounderby was obliged to get up from table and stand with his back to the fire looking at her she was such an enhancement of his merits and you were in crack society devilish high society he said warming his legs tis true sir returned mrs sparsett with an affectation of humility the very opposite of his and therefore in no danger of jostling it you were in the tip-top fashion and all the rest of it said mr bounderby yes sir returned mrs sparsett with a kind of social widowhood upon her it is unquestionably true mr bounderby bending himself at his knees literally embraced his legs in his great satisfaction and laughed aloud mr and miss gradgrind being then announced he received the former with a shake of the hand and the latter with a kiss can jupe be sent here bounderby asked mr gradgrind certainly so jupe was sent there on coming in she curtsied to mr bounderby and to his friend tom gradgrind and also to louisa but in her confusion unluckily omitted mrs sparsett observing this the blusterous bounderby had the following remarks to make now i tell you what my girl the name of that lady by the teapot is mrs sparsett that lady acts as mistress of this house and she is a highly connected lady 
consequently if ever you come again into any room in this house you will make a short stay in it if you don't behave towards that lady in your most respectful manner now i don't care a button what you do to me because i don't affect to be anybody so far from having high connections i have no connections at all and i come of the scum of the earth but towards that lady i do care what you do and you shall do what is deferential and respectful or you shall not come here i hope bounderby said mr gradgrind in a conciliatory voice that this was merely an oversight my friend tom gradgrind suggests mrs sparsit said bounderby that this was merely an oversight very likely however as you are aware ma'am i don't allow of even oversights towards you you are very good indeed sir returned mrs sparsit shaking her head with her state humility it is not worth speaking of sissy who all this time had been faintly excusing herself with tears in her eyes was now waved over by the master of the house to mr gradgrind she stood looking intently at him and louisa stood coldly by with her eyes upon the ground while he proceeded thus jupe i have made up my mind to take you into my house and when you're not in attendance at the school to employ you about mrs gradgrind who is rather an invalid i have explained to miss louisa this is miss louisa the miserable but natural end of your late career and you are to expressly understand that the whole of that subject is past and is not to be referred to any more from this time you begin your history you are at present ignorant i know yes sir very she answered curtsying i shall have the satisfaction of causing you to be strictly educated and you will be a living proof to all who come into communication with you of the advantages of the training you will receive you will be reclaimed and formed you have been in the habit now of reading to your father and those people i found you among i dare say said mr gradgrind beckoning her nearer to him before he said so and dropping his voice only to father and merrylegs sir at least i mean to father when merrylegs was always there never mind merrylegs jupe said mr gradgrind with a passing frown i don't ask about him i understand you to have been in the habit of reading to your father oh yes sir thousands of times they were the happiest oh of all the happy times we had together sir it was only now when her grief broke out that louisa looked at her and what asked mr gradgrind in a still lower voice did you read to your father jupe about the fairies sir and the dwarf and the hunchback and the genies she sobbed out there said mr gradgrind that is enough never breathe a word of such destructive nonsense any more bounderby this is a case for rigid training and i shall observe it with interest well returned mr bounderby i have given you my opinion already and i shouldn't do as you do but very well very well since you're bent upon it very well so mr gradgrind and his daughter took cecilia jupe off with them to stone lodge and on the way louisa never spoke one word good or bad and mr bounderby went about his daily pursuits and mrs sparsit got behind her eyebrows and meditated in the gloom of that retreat all the morning chapter eight let us strike the keynote again before pursuing the tune 
when she was half a dozen years younger louisa had been overheard to begin a conversation with her brother one day by saying tom i wonder upon which mr gradgrind who was the person overhearing stepped forth into the light and said louisa never wonder herein lay the spring of the mechanical art and mystery of educating the reason without stooping to the cultivation of the sentiments and affections never wonder by means of addition subtraction multiplication and division settle everything somehow and never wonder bring to me says machokum child yonder baby just about to walk and i will engage that it shall never wonder now besides very many babies just able to walk there happened to be in coketown a considerable population of babies who had been walking against time towards the infinite world twenty thirty forty fifty years and more these potentous infants being alarming creatures to stalk about in any human society the eighteen denominations incessantly scratched one another's faces and pulled one another's hair by way of agreeing on the steps to be taken for their improvement which they never did a surprising circumstance when the happy adaptation of the means to the end is considered still although they differed in every other particular conceivable and inconceivable especially inconceivable they were pretty well united on the point that these unlucky infants were never to wonder body number one said they must take everything on trust body number two said they must take everything on political economy body number three wrote leaden little books for them showing how the good grown-up baby invariably got to the savings bank and the bad grown-up baby invariably got transported body number four under dreary pretences of being droll when it was very melancholy indeed made the shallowest pretences of concealing pitfalls of knowledge into which it was the duty of these babies to be smuggled and inveigled but all the bodies agreed that they were never to wonder there was a library in coketown to which general access was easy mr gradgrind greatly tormented his mind about what the people read in this library a point whereon little rivers of tabular statements periodically flowed into the howling ocean of tabular statements which no diver ever got to any depth in and came up sane it was a disheartening circumstance but a melancholy fact that even these readers persisted in wondering they wondered about human nature human passions human hopes and fears the struggles triumphs and defeats the cares and joys and sorrows the lives and deaths of common men and women they sometimes after fifteen hours work sat down to read mere fables about men and women more or less like themselves and children more or less like their own they took defoe to their bosoms instead of euclid and seemed to be on the whole more comforted by goldsmith than by cocker mr gradgrind was for ever working in print and out of print at this eccentric sum and he could never make out how it yielded this unaccountable product i am sick of my life lou i hate it altogether and i hate everybody except you said the unnatural young thomas gradgrind in the hair-cutting chamber at twilight you don't hate sissy tom i hate to be obliged to call her dupe and she hates me said tom moodily no she does not tom i'm sure she must said tom she must just hate and detest the whole set out of us 
they'll bother her head off i think before they've done with her already she's getting as pale as wax and as heavy as i am young thomas expressed these sentiments sitting astride of a chair before the fire with his arms on the back and his sulky face on his arms his sister sat in the darker corner by the fireside now looking at him now looking at the bright sparks as they dropped upon the hearth as to me said tom tumbling his hair all manner of ways with his sulky hands i am a donkey that's what i am i am as obstinate as one i am more stupid than one i get as much pleasure as one and i should like to kick like one not me i hope tom no lou i wouldn't hurt you i made an exception of you at first i don't know what this jolly old jaundice jail tom had paused to find a sufficiently complimentary and expressive name for the parental roof and seemed to relieve his mind for a moment by the strong alliteration of this one would be without you indeed tom do you really and truly say so why of course i do what's the use of talking about it returned tom chafing his face on his coat sleeve as if to mortify his flesh and have it in unison with his spirit because tom said his sister after silently watching the sparks a while as i get older and nearer growing up i often sit wondering here and think how unfortunate it is for me that i can't reconcile you to home better than i'm able to i don't know what other girls know i can't play to you or sing to you i can't talk to you so as to lighten your mind for i never see any amusing sights or read any amusing books that it would be a pleasure or a relief to you to talk about when you are tired well no more do i i'm as bad as you in that respect and i am a mule too which you're not if father was determined to make me either a prig or a mule and i'm not a prig why it stands to reason i must be a mule and so i am said tom desperately it's a great pity said louisa after another pause and speaking thoughtfully out of her dark corner it's a great pity tom it's very unfortunate for both of us oh you said tom you are a girl lou and a girl comes out of it better than a boy does i don't miss anything in you you are the only pleasure i have you can brighten even this place and you can always lead me as you like you are a dear brother tom and while you think i can do such things i don't much mind knowing better though i do know better tom and i'm very sorry for it she came and kissed him and went back into her corner again i wish i could collect all the facts we hear so much about said tom spitefully setting his teeth and all the figures and all the people who found them out and i wish i could put a thousand barrels of gunpowder under them and blow them all up together however when i go to live with old bounderby i'll have my revenge your revenge tom i mean i'll enjoy myself a little and go about and see something and hear something i'll recompense myself for the way in which i've been brought up but don't disappoint yourself beforehand tom mr bounderby thinks as father thinks and is a great deal rougher and not half so kind oh said tom laughing i don't mind that i shall very well know how to manage and smooth old bounderby their shadows were defined upon the wall but those of the high presses in the room were all blended together on the wall and on the ceiling 
as if the brother and sister were overhung by a dark cavern or a fanciful imagination if such treason could have been there might have made it out to be the shadow of their subject and of its lowering association with their future what is your great mode of smoothing and managing tom is it a secret oh said tom if it is a secret it's not far off it's you you are his little pet you are his favourite he'll do anything for you when he says to me what i don't like i shall say to him my sister lou will be hurt and disappointed mr bounderby she always used to tell me she was sure you would be easier with me than this that'll bring him about or nothing will after waiting for some answering remark and getting none tom wearily relapsed into the present time and twined himself yawning round and about the rails of his chair and he rumpled his head more and more until he suddenly looked up and asked have you gone to sleep lou no tom i'm looking at the fire you seem to find more to look at in it than ever i could find said tom another of the advantages i suppose of being a girl tom inquired his sister slowly and in a curious tone as if she were reading what she asked in the fire and it were not quite plainly written there do you look forward with any satisfaction to this change to mr bounderby's why there's one thing to be said of it returned tom pushing his chair from him and standing up it will be getting away from home there is one thing to be said of it louisa repeated in her former curious tone it will be getting away from home yes not but what i shall be very unwilling both to leave you lou and to leave you here but i must go you know whether i like it or not and i'd better go where i can take with me some advantage of your influence than where i should lose it altogether don't you see yes tom the answer was so long in coming though there was no indecision in it that tom went and leaned on the back of her chair to contemplate the fire which so engrossed her from her point of view and see what he could make of it except that it is a fire said tom it looks to me as stupid and blank as everything else looks what do you see in it not a circus i don't see anything in it tom particularly but since i've been looking at it i've been wondering about you and me growing up wondering again said tom i have such unmanageable thoughts returned his sister that they will wonder then i beg of you louisa said mrs gradgrind who had opened the door without being heard to do nothing of that description for goodness sake you inconsiderate girl or i shall never hear the last of it from your father and thomas it is really shameful with my poor head continually wearing me out that a boy brought up as you have been and whose education has cost what yours has should be found encouraging his sister to wonder when he knows his father has expressly said that she is not to do it louisa denied tom's participation in the offence but her mother stopped her with the conclusive answer louisa don't tell me in my state of health for unless you have been encouraged it is morally and physically impossible that you could have done it i was encouraged by nothing mother but by looking at the red sparks dropping out of the fire and whitening and dying it made me think after all how short my life would be and how little i could hope to do in it nonsense said mrs gradgrind rendered almost energetic nonsense 
don't stand there and tell me such stuff louisa to my face when you know very well that if it was ever to reach your father's ears i should never hear the last of it after all the trouble that has been taken with you after the lectures you have attended and the experiments you have seen after i have heard you myself when the whole of my right side has been benumbed going on with your master about combustion and calcination and calorification and i may say every kind of ation that could drive a poor invalid distracted to hear you talking in this absurd way about sparks and ashes i wish whimpered mrs gradgrind taking a chair and discharging her strongest points before succumbing under these mere shadows of facts yes i really do wish that i had never had a family and that you would have known what it was to do without me End of part four. Part five of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal, Saturday, April the twenty ninth, eighteen fifty four. Chapter ten. Sissy Jupe had not had an easy time of it between Mr. Machokumchild and Mrs. Gradgrind, and was not without strong impulses, in the first months of her probation, to run away. It hailed facts all day long, so very hard, and life in general was open to her as such a closely ruled ciphering book, that assuredly she would have run away, but for only one restraint. It is lamentable to think of, but this restraint was the result of no arithmetical process, was self-imposed in defiance of all calculation, and went dead against any table of probabilities that any actuary would have drawn up from the premises. The girl believed that her father had not deserted her. She lived in the hope that he would come back, and in the faith that he would be made the happier by her remaining where she was. The wretched ignorance with which Jupe clung to this consolation rejecting the superior comfort of knowing on a sound arithmetical basis that her father was an unnatural vagabond filled mr gradgrind with pity yet what was to be done machokum child reported that she had a very dense head for figures that once possessed with a general idea of the globe she took the smallest conceivable interest in its exact measurements that she was extremely slow in the acquisition of dates unless some pitiful incident happened to be connected therewith that she would burst into tears on being required by the mental process immediately to name the cost of two hundred and forty-seven muslin caps at fourteen pence halfpenny that she was as low down in the school as low could be that after eight weeks of induction into the elements of political economy she had only yesterday been set right by a prattler three feet high for returning to the question what is the first principle of this science the absurd answer to do unto others as I would that they should do unto me. Mr. Gradgrind observed, shaking his head, that all this was very bad, that it showed the necessity of infinite grinding at the mill of knowledge, as per system, schedule, blue book, report, and tabular statements A to Z, and that Jupe must be kept to it. So Jupe was kept to it, and became very low-spirited, but no wiser. It would be a fine thing to be you, Miss Louisa, she said one night, when Louisa had endeavoured to make her perplexities for next day something clearer to her. Do you think so? I should know so much, Miss Louisa. 
all that is difficult to me now will be so easy then you might not be the better for it sissy sissy submitted after a little hesitation i should not be the worse miss louisa to which miss louisa answered i don't know that there had been so little communication between these two both because life at stone lodge went monotonously round like a piece of machinery which discouraged human interference and because of the prohibition relative to sissy's past career that they were still almost strangers sissy with her dark eyes wonderingly directed to louisa's face was uncertain whether to say more or to remain silent you're more useful to my mother and more pleasant with her than i can ever be louisa resumed you are pleasanter to yourself than i am to myself but if you please miss louisa sissy pleaded i am oh so stupid louisa with a brighter laugh than usual told her she would be wiser by and by you don't know said sissy half crying what a stupid girl i am all through school hours i make mistakes mr and mrs machokum child call me up over and over again regularly to make mistakes i can't help them they seem to come natural to me mr and mrs machokum child never make any mistakes themselves i suppose sissy oh no she eagerly returned they know everything tell me some of your mistakes i'm almost ashamed said sissy with reluctance but to-day for instance mr machokum child was explaining to us about natural prosperity national i think it must have been observed louisa yes it was but isn't it the same she timidly asked you had better say national as he said so returned louisa with her dry reserve national prosperity and he said now this schoolroom is a nation and in this nation there are fifty millions of money isn't this a prosperous nation girl number twenty isn't this a prosperous nation and aren't you in a thriving state what did you say asked louisa miss louisa i said i didn't know i thought i couldn't know whether it was a prosperous nation or not and whether i was in a thriving state or not unless i knew who had got the money and whether any of it was mine but that had nothing to do with it it was not in the figures at all said sissy wiping her eyes that was a great mistake of yours observed louisa yes miss louisa i know it was now then mr machokum child said he would try me again and he said this schoolroom is an immense town and in it there are a million of inhabitants and only five-and-twenty are starved to death in the streets in the course of a year what's your remark on that proportion and my remark was for i couldn't think of a better one that i thought it must be just as hard upon those who were starved whether the others were a million or a million million and that was wrong too of course it was then mr machokum child said he would try me once more and he said here are the stutterings statistics said louisa yes miss louisa they always remind me of stutterings and that's another of my mistakes of accidents upon the sea and i find mr machokum child said that in a given time a hundred thousand persons went to sea on long voyages and only five hundred of them were drowned or burnt to death what's the percentage and i said miss here sissy fairly sobbed as confessing with extreme contrition to her greatest error i said it was nothing nothing sissy nothing miss to the relations and friends of the people who were killed i shall never learn said sissy 
and the worst of all is that although my poor father wished me so much to learn and although i'm so anxious to learn because he wished me to i'm afraid i don't like it louisa stood looking at the pretty modest head as it drooped abashed before her until it was raised again to glance at her face then she asked did your father know so much himself that he wished you to be well taught too sissy sissy hesitated before replying and so plainly showed her sense that they were entering on forbidden ground that louisa added no one hears us and if any one did i'm sure no harm could be found in such an innocent question no miss louisa answered sissy upon this encouragement shaking her head father knows very little indeed it's as much as he can do to write and it's more than people in general can do to read his writing though it's plain to me your mother father says she was quite a scholar she died when i was born she was sissy made the terrible communication nervously she was a dancer did your father love her louisa asked these questions with a strong wild wandering interest peculiar to her an interest gone astray like a banished creature and hiding in solitary places oh yes as dearly as he loves me father loved me first for her sake he carried me about with him when i was quite a baby we have never been asunder from that time yet he leaves you now sissy only for my good nobody understands him as i do nobody knows him as i do when he left me for my good he never would have left me for his own i know he was almost broken-hearted with the trial he will not be happy for a single minute till he comes back tell me more about him said louisa i will never ask you again where did you live we travelled about the country and i had no fixed place to live in father's a sissy whispered the awful word a clown to make people laugh said louisa with a nod of intelligence yes but they wouldn't laugh sometimes and then father cried lately they very often wouldn't laugh and he used to come home despairing father's not like most those who didn't know him as well as i do and didn't love him as dearly as i do might believe he was not quite right sometimes they played tricks upon him but they never knew how he felt them and strung up when he was alone with me he was far far timider than they thought and you were his comfort through everything she nodded with the tears rolling down her face i hope so and father said i was it was because he grew so scared and trembling and because he felt himself to be a poor weak ignorant helpless man those used to be his words that he wanted me so much to know a great deal and be different from him i used to read to him to cheer his courage and he was very fond of that they were wrong books i am never to speak of them here but we didn't know there was any harm in them and he liked them said louisa with a searching gaze on sissy all this time oh very much they kept him many times from what did him real harm and often and often of a night he used to forget all his troubles in wondering whether the sultan would let the lady go on with the story that would have her head cut off before it was finished and your father was always kind to the last asked louisa contravening the general principle and wondering very much always always returned sissy clasping her hands kinder and kinder than i can tell he was angry only one night 
and that was not to me but merry legs merry legs she whispered the awful fact is his performing dog why was he angry with the dog louisa demanded father soon after they came home from performing told merry legs to jump up on the backs of the two chairs and stand across them which is one of his tricks he looked at father and didn't do it at once everything of father's had gone wrong that night and he hadn't pleased the public at all he cried out that the very dog knew he was failing and had no compassion on him then he beat the dog and i was frightened and said father father pray don't hurt the creature who's so fond of you oh heaven forgive you father stop and he stopped and the dog was bloody and father lay down crying on the floor with the dog in his arms and the dog licked his face louisa saw that she was sobbing and going to her kissed her took her hand and sat down beside her finish by telling me how your father left you sissy now that i have asked you so much tell me the end the blame if there is any blame is mine not yours dear miss louisa said sissy covering her eyes and sobbing yet i came home from the school that afternoon and found poor father just come home too from the booth and he sat rocking himself over the fire as if he was in pain and i said have you hurt yourself father as he did sometimes like they all did and he said a little my darling and when i come to stoop down and look at his face i saw that he was crying the more i spoke to him the more he hid his face and at first he shook all over and said nothing but my darling and my love here tom came lounging in and stared at the two with a coolness not particularly savouring of interest in anything but himself and not much of that at present i'm asking sissy a few questions tom observed his sister you have no occasion to go away but don't interrupt us for a moment tom dear oh very well returned tom only father has brought old bounderby home and i want you to come into the drawing-room because if you come there's a good chance of old bounderby's asking me to dinner and if you don't there's none i'll come directly i'll wait for you said tom to make sure sissy resumed in a lower voice alas poor father said that he'd given no satisfaction again and never did give any satisfaction now and that he was a shame and disgrace and i should have done better without him all along i said all the affectionate things to him that came into my heart and presently he was quiet and i sat down by him and told him all about the school and everything that had been said and done there when i had no more left to tell he put his arms round my neck and kissed me a great many times then he asked me to fetch some of the stuff he used for the little hurt he had had and to get it at the best place which was at the other end of town from there and then after kissing me again he let me go when i'd gone downstairs i turned back that i might be a little bit more company to him yet and looked in at the door and said father dear shall i take merry legs father shook his head and said no sissy no said nothing that's known to be mine my darling and i left him sitting by the fire then the thought must have come upon him poor poor father of going away to try something for my sake but when i came back he was gone i say look sharp for old bounderby lou tom remonstrated there's no more to tell miss louisa i keep the nine oars ready for him and i know he will come back 
every letter that i see in mr gradgrind's hand takes me breath away and blinds me eyes for i think it comes from father or from mr sleary about father mr sleary promised to write as soon as ever father should be heard of and i trust to him to keep his word do look sharp for old bounderby loo said tom with an impatient whistle he'll be off if you don't look sharp after this whenever sissy dropped a curtsy to mr gradgrind in the presence of his family and said in a faltering way i beg your pardon sir for being troublesome but have you had any letter yet about me louisa would suspend the occupation of the moment whatever it was and look for the reply as earnestly as sissy did and when mr gradgrind regularly answered no dupe nothing of the sort the trembling of sissy's lip would be repeated in louisa's face and her eyes would follow sissy with compassion to the door mr gradgrind usually improved these occasions by remarking when she was gone that if dupe had been properly trained from an early age she would have demonstrated to herself on sound principles the baselessness of these fantastic hopes yet it did seem though not to him for he saw nothing of it as if a fantastic hope could take as strong a hold as fact this observation must be limited exclusively to his daughter as to tom he was becoming that not unprecedented triumph of calculation which is usually at work on number one as to mrs gradgrind if she said anything on the subject she would come a little way out of her wrappers like a feminine dormouse and say good gracious bless me how my poor head is vexed and worried by that girl jupe so perseveringly asking over and over again about her tiresome letters upon my word and honour i seem to be fated and destined and ordained to live in the midst of things that i am never to hear the last of it really is a most extraordinary circumstance that it appears as if i never was to hear the last of anything at about this point mr gradgrind's eye would fall upon her and under the influence of that wintry piece of fact she would become torpid again chapter ten i entertain a weak idea that the english people are as hard worked as any people on whom the sun shines i acknowledge to this ridiculous idiosyncrasy as a reason why i would give them a little more play in the hardest working part of coketown in the innermost fortifications of that ugly citadel where nature was as strongly bricked out as killing airs and gases were bricked in at the heart of the labyrinth of narrow courts upon courts and close streets upon streets which had come into existence piecemeal every piece in a violent hurry for some one man's purpose and the whole an unnatural family shouldering and trampling and pressing one another to death in the last close nook of this great exhausted receiver where the chimneys for want of air to make a draught were built in an immense variety of stunted and crooked shapes as though every house put out a sign of the kind of people who might be expected to be born in it among the multitude of coketown generically called the hands a race who would have found more favour with some people if providence had seen fit to make them only hands or like the lower creatures of the seashore only hands and stomachs lived a certain stephen blackpool forty years of age stephen looked older but he had had a hard life it is said that every life has its roses and thorns there seemed however to have been a misadventure or mistake in stephen's case 
whereby somebody else had become possessed of his roses and he had become possessed of the same somebody else's thorns in addition to his own he had known to use his words a peck of trouble he was usually called old stephen in a kind of rough homage to the fact a rather stooping man with a knitted brow a pondering expression of face and a hard-looking head sufficiently capacious on which his iron-grey hair lay long and thin old stephen might have passed for a particularly intelligent man in his condition yet he was not he took no place among those remarkable hands who piecing together their broken intervals of leisure through many years had mastered difficult sciences and acquired a knowledge of most unlikely things he held no station among the hands who could make speeches and carry on debates thousands of his compeers could talk much better than he at any time he was a good power-loom weaver and a man of perfect integrity what more he was or what else he had in him if anything let him show for himself the lights in the great factories which looked when they were illuminated like fairy palaces or the travellers by express train said so were all extinguished and the bells had rung for knocking off for the night and had ceased again and the hands men and women boy and girl were clattering home old stephen was standing in the street with the odd sensation upon him which the stoppage of the machinery always produced the sensation of its having worked and stopped in his own head yet i don't see rachel still said he it was a wet night and many groups of young women passed him with their shawls drawn over their bare heads and held close under their chins to keep the rain out he knew rachel well for a glance at any one of these groups was sufficient to show him that she was not there at last there were no more to come and then he turned away saying in a tone of disappointment why then i am mister but he had not gone the length of three streets when he saw another of the shawled figures in advance of him at which he looked so keenly that perhaps its mere shadow indistinctly reflected on the wet pavement if he could have seen it without the figure itself moving along from lamp to lamp brightening and fading as it went would have been enough to tell him who was there making his pace at once much quicker and much softer he darted on until he was very near this figure then fell into his former walk and called rachel she turned being then in the brightness of a lamp and raising her hood a little showed a quiet oval face dark and rather delicate irradiated by a pair of very gentle eyes and further set off by the perfect order of her shining black hair it was not a face in its first bloom she was a woman five and thirty years of age ah lad tis thou when she had said this with a smile which would have been quite expressed though nothing of her had been seen but her pleasant eyes she replaced her hood again and they went on together i thought thou wast ahind me rachel no early to-night lass times i'm a little early stephen times a little late i'm never to be counted on going home no going t'other way neither seems to me rachel no stephen he looked at her with some disappointment in his face but with a respectful and patient conviction that she must be right in whatever she did the expression was not lost upon her she laid her hand lightly on his arm a moment as if to thank him for it we're such true friends lad and such old friends 
and getting to be such old folk now no rachel thou'rt as young as ever thou wast one of us would be puzzled how to get old stephen without t'other getting so too both being alive she answered laughing but anyways we're such old friends that tie the word of honest truth for one another would be a sin and a pity tis better not to walk too much together times yes twould be hard indeed if twas not to be at all she said with a cheerfulness she sought to communicate to him tis hard anyways rachel try to think not and twill seem better i've tried a long time and tank got better but thou art right to might make folk talk even of thee thou hast been that to me rachel through so many year thou hast done me so much good and heartened of me in that cheering way that thy word is a law to me ah lass and a bright good law better than some real ones never fret about them stephen she answered quickly and not without an anxious glance at his face let the laws be yes he said with a slow nod or two let em be let everything be let all sorts alone tis a muddle and that's all always a muddle said rachel with another gentle touch upon his arm as if to recall him out of the thoughtfulness in which he was biting the long ends of his loose neckerchief as he walked along the touch had its instantaneous effect he let them fall turned a smiling face upon her and said as he broke into a good-humoured laugh ay rachel lass allus a muddle that's where i stick i come to the muddle many times and again and i never get beyond it they had walked some distance and were near their own homes the woman's was the first reached it was in one of the many small streets for which the favourite undertaker who turned a handsome sum out of the one poor ghastly pomp of the neighbourhood kept a black ladder in order that those who had done their daily groping up and down the narrow stairs might slide out of this working world by the windows she stopped at the corner and putting her hand in his wished him good night good night dear lass good night she went with her neat figure and her sober womanly step down the dark street and he stood looking after her until she turned into one of the small houses there was not a flutter in her coarse shawl perhaps but had its interest in this man's eyes not a tone of her voice but had its echo in his innermost heart when she was lost to his view he pursued his homeward way glancing up sometimes at the sky where the clouds were sailing fast and wildly but they were broken now and the rain had ceased and the moon shone looking down the high chimneys of coketown on the deep furnaces below and casting titanic shadows of the steam engines at rest upon the walls where they were lodged the man seemed to have brightened with the night as he went on his home in such another street as the first saving that it was narrower was over a little shop how it came to pass that any people found it worth their while to sell or buy the wretched little toys mixed up in its window with cheap newspapers and pork there was a leg to be raffled for tomorrow night matters not here he took his end of candle from a shelf lighted it at another end of candle on the counter without disturbing the mistress of the shop who was asleep in her little room and went upstairs into his lodging it was a room not unacquainted with the black ladder under various tenants but as neat at present as such a room could be 
a few books and writings were on an old bureau in a corner the furniture was decent and sufficient and though the atmosphere was tainted the room was clean going to the hearth to set the candle down upon a round three-legged table standing there he stumbled against something as he recoiled looking down at it it raised itself up in the form of a woman in a sitting attitude heaven's mercy woman he cried falling farther off from the figure hast thou come back again such a woman a disabled drunken creature barely able to preserve the sitting posture by steadying herself with one begrimed hand on the floor while the other was so purposeless in trying to push away her tangled hair from her face that it only blinded her the more with the dirt upon it a creature so foul to look at in her tatters stains and splashes but so much fouler than that in her moral infamy that it was a shameful thing even to see her after an impatient oath or two and some stupid clawing of herself with the hand not necessary to her support she got her hair away from her eyes sufficiently to obtain a sight of him then she sat swaying her body to and fro and making gestures with her unnerved arm which seemed intended as the accompaniment to a fit of laughter though her face was stolid and drowsy eh lad what you there some hoarse sounds meant for this came mockingly out of her at last and her head dropped forward on her breast back again she screeched after some minutes as if he had that moment said it yes and back again back again ever and ever so often back yes back why not roused by the unmeaning violence with which she cried it out she scrambled up and stood supporting herself with her shoulders against the wall dangling in one hand by the string a dunghill fragment of a bonnet and trying to look scornfully at him i'll sell thee off again and i'll sell thee off again and i'll sell thee off a score of times she cried with something between a furious menace and an effort at a defiant dance come away from th bed he was sitting on the side of it with his face hidden in his hands come away from t tis mine and i've a right to it as she staggered to it he avoided her with a shudder and passed his face still hidden to the opposite end of the room she threw herself upon the bed heavily and soon was snoring hard he sunk into a chair and moved but once all that night it was to throw a covering over her as if his hands were not enough to hide her even in the darkness end of part five Part six of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal, Saturday, May the sixth, eighteen fifty four. Chapter eleven. The fairy palaces burst out into illumination before pale morning showed the monstrous serpents of smoke trailing themselves over Coke Town a clattering of clogs upon the pavement a rapid ringing of bells and all the melancholy mad elephants polished and oiled up for the day's monotony were at their heavy exercise again stephen bent over his loom quiet watchful and steady a special contrast as every man was in the forest of looms where stephen worked to the crashing smashing tearing piece of mechanism at which he laboured 
never fear good people of an anxious turn of mind that art will consign nature to oblivion set anywhere side by side the work of god and the work of man and the former even though it be a troop of hands of very small account will gain in solemn dignity from the comparison four hundred and more hands in this mill two hundred and fifty horse steam power it is known to the force of a single pound weight what the engine will do but not all the calculators of the national debt can tell me the capacity for good or evil for love or hatred for patriotism or discontent for the decomposition of virtue into vice or the reverse at any single moment in the soul of one of these is quiet servants with the composed faces and the regulated actions there is no mystery in it there is an unfathomable mystery in the meanest of them for ever supposing we were to reserve our arithmetic for material objects and to govern these awful unknown quantities by other means the day grew strong and showed itself outside even against the flaming lights within the lights were turned out and the work went on the rain fell and the smoke serpents submissive to the curse of all that tribe trailed themselves upon the earth in the waste-yard outside the steam from the escape pipe the litter of barrels and old iron the shining heaps of coals the ashes everywhere were shrouded in a veil of mist and rain the work went on until the noon bell rang more clattering upon the pavements the looms and wheels and hands all out of gear for an hour stephen came out of the hot mill into the damp wind and the cold wet streets haggard and worn he turned from his own class and his own quarter taking nothing but a little bread as he walked along towards the hill on which his principal employer lived in a red house with black outside shutters green inside blinds a black street door up two white steps bounderby in letters very like himself upon a brazen plate and a round brazen door handle underneath it like a brazen full stop mr bounderby was at his lunch so stephen had expected would his servant say that one of the hands begged leave to speak to him message in return requiring name of such hand stephen blackpool there was nothing troublesome against stephen blackpool yes he might come in stephen blackpool in the parlour mr bounderby whom he just knew by sight at lunch on chop and sherry mrs sparsett netting at the fireside in a side saddle attitude with one foot in a cotton stirrup it was a part at once of mrs sparsett's dignity and service not to lunch she supervised the meal officially but implied that in her own stately person she considered lunch a weakness now stephen said mr bounderby what's the matter with you stephen made a bow not a servile one these hands will never do that lord bless you sir you'll never catch them at that if they have been with you twenty years and as a complimentary toilet for mrs sparsett tucked his neckerchief ends into his waistcoat now you know said mr bounderby taking some sherry we have never had any difficulty with you and you have never been one of the unreasonable ones you don't expect to be set up in a coach and six and to be fed on turtle soup and venison with a gold spoon as a good many of them do Mr. Bounderby always represented this to be the sole immediate and direct object of any hand who was not entirely satisfied. And therefore, 
i know already that you've not come here to make a complaint now you know i'm certain of that beforehand no sir sure i annot come for nowt o'th kind mr bounderby seemed agreeably surprised notwithstanding his previous strong conviction very well he returned you're a steady hand and i was not mistaken now let me hear what it's all about as it's not that let me hear what it is what have you got to say out with it lad stephen happened to glance towards mrs sparsett i can go mr bounderby if you wish it said that self-sacrificing lady making a feint of taking her foot out of the stirrup mr bounderby stayed her by holding a mouthful of chop in suspension before swallowing it and putting out his left hand then withdrawing his hand and swallowing his mouthful of chop he said to stephen now you know this good lady is a born lady a high lady you are not to suppose because she keeps my house for me that she hasn't been very high up the tree ah up at the top of the tree now if you've got anything to say that can't be said before a born lady this lady will leave the room if what you've got to say can be said before a born lady this lady will stay where she is sir i hope i never had nought to say not fitten for a born lady to hear sin i were born me said was the reply accompanied with a slight flush very well said mr bounderby pushing away his plate and leaning back fire away ah come stephen began raising his eyes from the floor after a moment's consideration to ask your advice i need it over much i were married on a easter monday nineteen years sin long and dree she were a young lass prettier now we good accounts of her sen well she went bad soon not along of me go knows i were not a unkind husband to her i've heard all this before said mr bounderby she found other companions took to drinking left off working sold the furniture pawned the clothes and played old gooseberry i were patient we are the more fool you i think said mr bounderby in confidence to his wine-glass i were very patient we are i tried to wean a frat o'er and o'er again i tried this i tried that i tried t'other i had gone home many's the time and found all vanished as i had in the world and her without a sense left to bless her sen lying on bare ground i had done not once not twice twenty time every line in his face deepened as he said it and put in its affecting evidence of the suffering he had undergone from bad to worse from worse to worse she left me she disgraced us then everywheres bitter and bad she come back she come back she come back what could i do tinder i'll walk the streets nights long ere ever i go home i ha gone to th brig minded to fling me sin o'er and i no more on't i bore that much that i were owd when i were young mrs sparsett easily ambling along with her netting needles raised the coriolanian eyebrows and shook her head as much as to say the great no trouble as well as the small please to turn your humble eye in my direction i appeared at a keep away from me these five year i appeared her i got in decent futurals about me again i lived hard and sad but not ashamed and fearful o'er the minutes o' me life 
last night i went home there she lay upon me arston there she is in the strength of his misfortune and the energy of his distress he fired for the moment like a proud man in another moment he stood as he had stood all the time his usual stoop upon him his pondering face addressed to mr bounderby with a curious expression on it half shrewd half perplexed as if his mind were set upon unravelling something very difficult his hat held tight in his left hand which rested on his hip his right arm with a rugged propriety and force of action very earnestly emphasising what he said not least so when it always paused a little bent but not withdrawn as he paused i was acquainted with all this you know said mr bounderby except the last clause long ago it's a bad job that's what it is you'd better have been satisfied as you were and not have got married however however it's too late to say that was it an unequal marriage sir in point of years asked mrs sparsett yea what this lady asks was it an unequal marriage in point of years this unlucky job of yours said mr bounderby not e'en so i were one and twenty miss en she were twenty nigh bout indeed sir said mrs sparsett to her chief with great placidity i inferred from it being so miserable a marriage that it was probably an unequal one in point of years mr bounderby looked very hard at the good lady in a sidelong way that had an odd sheepishness about it he fortified himself with a little more sherry well why don't you go on he then asked turning rather irritably on stephen blackpool i have come to ask you sir how i am to be ridden of this woman stephen infused a yet deeper gravity into the mixed expression of his attentive face mrs sparsett uttered a gentle ejaculation as having received a moral shock what do you mean said bounderby getting up to lean his back against the chimney-piece what are you talking about you took her for better for worse i mun be ridden on her i cannot bear it no more i ha lived under it so long for that i hadn't the pity and the comforting words of best lass living her dead haply but for her i should have gone huttering mad he wishes to be free to marry the female of whom he speaks i fear sir observed mrs sparsett in an undertone and much dejected by the immorality of the people i do the lady says what's right i do i were a coming to it i a read i papers that great folk fair for a more i wishes em no hurt are not bonded together for better for worse so fast but that they can be set free for their misfortunate marriages and marry o'er again when they don't agree for that the tempers is ill-sorted they have rooms of one kind and another in their houses and they can live asunders we folk are only one room and we can't when that won't do they are gowed and other cash and they can say this for you and that for me and they can go the separate ways we can't spite all that they can be set free for smaller wrongs than is suffered by hundreds and hundreds of us by women four more than men they can be set free for smaller wrongs than mine so i mun be ridden of this wife of mine and i want to know how no how returned mr bounderby if i do her any hurt sir there's a law to punish me of course there is 
if i flee from her there's a law to punish me of course there is if i marry t'other dear lass there's a law to punish me of course there is if i was to live wi her and not marry her saying such a thing could be which it never could or would and her so good there's a law to punish me in every innocent chilt belonging to me of course there is now a god's name said stephen blackpool show me the law to help me there's a sanctity in this relation of life said mr bounderby and and it must be kept up no no dunnot say that sir tain't kept up that way not that way tis kept down that way i'm a weaver i were in a factory when a chilt but i got an een to see we and een to hear we i read in th' papers every sizes every sessions and you read too i know it with dismay how the impossibility of ever getting unchained from one another at any price on any terms brings blood upon this land and brings many common married folk again i say women fur oftener than men to battle murder and sudden death let us have this right understood mine's a grievous case and i want if you will be so good to north law that helps me now i tell you what said mr bounderby putting his hands in his pocket there is such a law stephen subsiding into his quiet manner and never wandering in his attention gave a nod but it's not for you at all it costs money it costs a mint of money how much might that be stephen calmly asked why you'd have to go to doctor's commons with a suit and you'd have to go to a court of common law with a suit and you'd have to go to the house of lords with a suit and you'd have to get an act of parliament to enable you to marry again and it would cost you if it was a case of very plain sailing i suppose from a thousand to fifteen hundred pound said mr bounderby perhaps twice the money there's no other law certainly not why then sir said stephen turning white and motioning with that right hand of his as if he gave everything to the four winds tis a muddle tis just a muddle altogether and the sooner i am dead the better mrs sparsit again dejected by the impiety of the people pooh pooh don't you talk nonsense my good fellow said mr bounderby about things you don't understand and don't you cure the institutions of your country a muddle or you'll get yourself into a real muddle one of these fine mornings the institutions of your country are not your piecework and the only thing you've got to do is to mind your piecework you didn't take your wife for fast and for loose but for better for worse if she's turned out worse why all we've got to say is she might have turned out better tis a muddle said stephen shaking his head as he moved to the door tis all a muddle now i'll tell you what mr bounderby resumed as a valedictory address with what i shall call your unhallowed opinions you've been quite shocking this lady who as i've already told you is a born lady and who as i've not already told you has had her own marriage misfortunes to the tune of tens of thousands of pounds tens of thousands of pounds he repeated it with great relish now 
you've always been a steady hand hitherto but my opinion is and so i tell you plainly that you are turning into the wrong road you've been listening to some mischievous stranger or other they're always about and the best thing you can do is to come out of that now you understand here his countenance expressed marvellous acuteness i can see as far into a grindstone as another man farther than a good many perhaps because i had my nose well kept to it when i was young i see traces of the turtle soup and venison and gold spoon in this yes i do cried mr bounderby shaking his head with obstinate cunning by the lord harry i do with a very different shake of the head and a deep sigh stephen said thank you sir i wish you good day so he left mr bounderby swelling at his own portrait on the wall as if he were going to explode himself into it and mrs sparsit still ambling on with her foot in the stirrup looking quite cast down by the popular vices chapter twelve old stephen descended the two white steps shutting the black door with the brazen door-plate with the aid of the brazen full stop to which he gave a parting polish with the sleeve of his coat observing that his hot hand clouded it he crossed the street with his eyes bent upon the ground and thus was walking sorrowfully away when he felt a touch upon his arm it was not the touch he needed most at such a moment the touch that could calm the wild waters of his soul as the uplifted hand of the sublimest love and patience could abate the raging of the sea yet it was a woman's hand too it was an old woman tall and shapely still though withered by time on whom his eyes fell when he stopped and turned she was very cleanly and plainly dressed had country mud upon her shoes and was newly come from a journey the flutter of her manner in the unwonted noise of the streets the spare shawl carried unfolded on her arm the heavy umbrella and little basket the loose long-fingered gloves to which her hands were unused all bespoke an old woman from the country in her plain holiday clothes come into coketown on an expedition of rare occurrence remarking this at a glance with the quick observation of his class stephen blackpool bent his attentive face his face which like the faces of many of his order by dint of long working with eyes and hands in the midst of a prodigious noise had acquired the concentrated look with which we are familiar in the countenances of the deaf the better to hear what she asked him pray sir said the old woman didn't i say you come out of that gentleman's house pointing back to mr bounderby's i believe it was you unless i've had the bad luck to mistake the person in following yes missus returned stephen it were me have you you'll excuse an old woman's curiosity have you seen the gentleman yes missus and how did he look sir was he portly bold outspoken hearty as she straightened her own figure and held up her head in adapting her action to her words the idea crossed stephen that he had seen this old woman before and had not quite liked her oh yes he returned observing her more attentively you are all that and healthy said the old woman as the fresh wind yes returned stephen you were eating and drinking as large and as loud as a hummer bee thank you said the old woman with infinite content thank you 
he certainly never had seen this old woman before yet there was a vague remembrance in his mind as if he had more than once dreamed of some old woman like her she walked along at his side and gently accommodating himself to her humour he said coketown was a busy place was it not to which she answered eh sure dreadful busy then he said she came from the country he saw to which she answered in the affirmative by parliamentary this morning i came forty mile by parliamentary this morning and i'm going back the same forty mile this afternoon i walked nine mile to the station this morning and if i find nobody on the road to give me a lift i shall walk the nine mile back to-night that's pretty well sir at my age said the chatty old woman her eyes brightening with exultation deed tis don't do it too often missus no no once a year she answered shaking her head i spend me savings so once every year i come regular to tramp about the streets and to see the gentlemen only to see em returned stephen that's enough for me she replied with great earnestness and interest of manner i ask no more i've been standing about on this side of the way to see that gentleman turning her head back towards mr bounderby's again come out but he's late this year and i've not seen him you came out instead now i'm obliged to go back without a glimpse of him you only want a glimpse well i've seen you and you've seen him and i must make that do saying this she looked at stephen as if to fix his features in her mind and her eyes were not so bright as they had been with a large allowance for difference of tastes and with all submission to the patricians of coketown this seemed so extraordinary a source of interest to take so much trouble about that it perplexed him but they were passing the church now and as his eye caught the clock he quickened his pace he was going to his work the old woman said quickening hers too quite easily yes time was nearly out on his telling her where he worked the old woman became a more singular old woman than before aren't you happy she asked him why there's almost nobody but has the troubles missus he answered evasively because the old woman appeared to take it for granted that he would be very happy indeed and he had not the heart to disappoint her he knew that there was trouble enough in the world and if the old woman had lived so long and could count upon his having so little why so much the better for her and none the worse for him ay ay you have your troubles at home you mean she said times times just now and then he answered slightly but working under such a gentleman they don't follow you to the factory no no they didn't follow him there said stephen all correct there everything accordant there he did not go so far as to say for her pleasure that there was a sort of divine right there but i have heard claims almost as magnificent of late years they were now in the black by-road near the place and the hands were crowding in the bell was ringing and the serpent was a serpent of many coils and the elephant was getting ready the strange old woman was delighted with the very bell it was the beautifulest bell she had ever heard she said and sounded grand she asked him when he stopped good-naturedly to shake hands with her before going in how long he had worked there a dozen year he told her i must kiss thy hand said she that has worked in this fine factory for a dozen year 
and she lifted it, though he would have prevented her, and put it to her lips. What harmony, besides her age and her simplicity, surrounded her, he did not know, but even in this fantastic action there was a something neither out of time nor place, a something which it seemed as if nobody else could have made as serious, or done with such a natural and touching air. He had been at his loom full half an hour, thinking about this old woman, when, having occasion to move round the loom for its adjustment, he glanced through a window which was in his corner, and saw her still looking up at the pile of building, lost in admiration. Heedless of the smoke and mud and wet, and of her two long journeys, she was gazing at it, as if the heavy thrum that issued from its many stories were proud music to her. She was gone by and by, and the day went after her, and the lights sprung up again, and the express whirled in full sight of the fairy palace over the arches near, little felt amid the jarring of the machinery, and scarcely heard above its crash and rattle. Long before then his thoughts had gone back to the dreary room above the little shop, and to the shameful figure, heavy on the bed, but heavier on his heart. Machinery slackened, throbbing feebly like a fainting pulse, stopped. The bell again, the glare of light and heat dispelled, the factories looming heavy in the black wet night, their tall chimneys rising up into the air like competing towers of Babel. He had spoken to Rachel only last night, it was true, and had walked with her a little way, but he had his new misfortune on him, in which no one else could give him a moment's relief, and, for the sake of it, and because he knew himself to want that softening of his anger which no voice but hers could effect, he felt he might so far disregard what she had said as to wait for her again. He waited, but she had eluded him. She was gone. On no other night in the year could he so ill have spared her patient face. Oh, better to have no home in which to lay his head than to have a home and dread to go to it, through such a cause. He ate and drank, for he was exhausted, but he little knew or cared what, and he wandered about in the chill rain, thinking and thinking, and brooding and brooding. No word of a new marriage had ever passed between them, but Rachel had taken great pity on him years ago, and to her alone he had opened his closed heart all this time on the subject of his miseries, and he knew very well that if he were free to ask her, she would take him. He thought of the home he might at that moment have been seeking with pleasure and pride, of the different man he might have been that night, of the lightness then in his now heavy-laden breast, of the then restored honour, self-respect and tranquillity, now all torn to pieces. He thought of the waste of the best part of his life, of the change it made in his character for the worse every way, of the dreadful nature of his existence, bound hand and foot to a dead woman, and tormented by a demon in her shape. He thought of Rachel, how young when they were first brought together in these circumstances, how mature now, how soon to grow old. He thought of the number of girls and women she had seen marry, how many homes with children in them she had seen grown up around her, how she had contentedly pursued her own lone quiet path for him, and how he had sometimes seen a shade of melancholy on her blessed face, that smote him with remorse and despair. He set the picture of her up, beside that infamous image of last night, and thought, 
could it be that the whole earthly course of one so gentle good and self-denying was subjugate to such a wretch as that filled with these thoughts so filled that he had an unwholesome sense of growing larger of being placed in some new and diseased relation towards the objects among which he passed of seeing the iris around every misty light turn red he went home for shelter End of part six. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.